worship God and hopefully progress spiritually. We are complete in Him, but we're not finished. No, we're not finished. God hasn't finished with you. You need to develop. You need to grow. I need to grow. And if the problem is, if you think you're complete, you've got a problem. <laughs> you're in a state of growth. Some of us don't eat the right food, so we don't grow. We are walking around like little, little people from Lilliput, and we're not big enough to do much. But God wants us all to grow so we can be men and women of faith. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Well, do you know, I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to help me this morning because um, it seems to me that there's so much being said last night that I'd like to speak on, but, and also because water is very important. Water. We've got a water shortage in the natural, but we've got a water shortage in the spiritual. <laughs> it seems that people's wells are getting blocked up. And uh, the enemy is trying to, be, trying to block my well up. He'll try and block your well up. That's his very, that's his very work. And um, as I was saying to Tony before the meeting, in North Wales a few years ago, I spoke on the book of Revelation, and I was saying that the whole church seems to be concentrating on the prophetic side of it, which isn't that important because Jesus has got his program and he's going to come back on the day and the time that he's got arranged. And what is important is the spiritual content. And the spiritual content is, when we look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the early church, the church is just the same today. The seven different churches and streams if Jesus walked into any one of our churches, he would say to you, what about this? What about that? Are you going to put this right and repent of that? There is a gospel today which wants to take repentance out of the gospel. You cannot possibly take repentance out of the gospel because you're going to continually have to repent from dead works to start with. There's something about us that wants to hang on to the old. God has always got something new for you. There is always something new. God is not a God of yesterday. He's a God of today. And a God of growth, fruitfulness, and joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. And if you're not growing, as Austin Sparks in the little book that Tony gave me, you will stagnate and die. So you better keep reading the Word. You better keep reading the Word. The Word of God in the Scripture says, um, the Apostle Peter said, there are people walking about, there are wells, he said, without water. <laughs> you mustn't be like that. They have been, been uh, coerced by the enemy to try and get drink from the world. And the devil will do everything he can to interrupt your fellowship with God in your fleshly part of you in order to interrupt and block your well. Um, John's in John the Apostle says in John 14, it, it should be a well springing up with you. And Proverbs, it says, a just, is a, a just person is a well of life. A righteous person is a well of life. And in Ephesians, Paul says in 5.26, we're washed with the water of the word. You need the word to wash you every day. It's quite simple. Just read the word and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what's going on and where you need washing and cleansing. There's a whole... In ex there's a whole thing where the priest had to be purified and washed with water. He had to go in the tabernacle. He couldn't go to the holiest place until he'd washed. So you've got to be a diligent reader of the word of God to keep yourself washed. Because if you don't, you'll get junk flown into your well and you'll seize up spiritually. And this is the great danger we're in. And... Uh, and all the, if you look through the Word of God, you'll find it everywhere. 
Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet at the Last Supper? Typifying, if you can get your mouth washed, your mouth will speak the word of God and not what you feel. We are tempted to say what we see and we feel, but the word of God can wash you so you speak what God says about it. This is a big challenge, isn't it? It's difficult for us because we're in a, an atmosphere and as I, when Tony was saying, the problem is not out there in the world, it's in the church. As Paul said to the Galatian church, he said, you've got another gospel. I'm sorry to tell you, we've got another gospel. It's not easy for us. But we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got the Word of God. We've got books and teachers who are sound, most of them back in the 16th, 17th and 18th century, I've got to tell you. And as you read these men of God like William Gurnell and Chadwick and Manton and these old people and Boston, they've changed my mind to see the glory of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel. And you know, there's something, I don't know why I'm going to attempt to speak on it to you this morning, and it's about what people, those old Jonathan Edwards Lane, these old theologians, these preachers that brought revival, talk about the active, positive obedience of the life of Christ. The active, positive obedience of how Jesus lived his earthly life and his ministry on earth. Now this is important because we've got a gospel that concentrates on certain sections of the gospel but doesn't get the whole picture. I think a few years ago we spoke upon the ascension. We don't hear much about the ascension. We should preach on it. Because in his ascension, he sits enthroned. You see, the problem with us is we can become so self-centered that we lose the plot. We've got to be Christ-centered so we see him and not see ourselves. Because if we can see Christ and Christ in us, we will live above all this, what we're walking through. You know, it's like Elisha, when he was plowing, between 12 oak of auction, he was walking in a lot of... <laughs> you know, we can walk in our daily life in a lot of, well, unmentionables. The S word, you know, is terrible. But he got called out. And we can get called out. And Elijah, Jesus, can come along and say, follow me and get away from the muck and serve me. What a wonderful thing, isn't it, to serve Jesus. But you know, sometimes we complain because we haven't got it just as we wanted. <laughs> Our lives are not always perfect. As the old Puritan said, dwell on, your, on the mercies and not your miseries. <laughs> We've all got our miseries. <laughs> you know, Kath and Eric were talking before the meeting, we say, we've both got three children and we've made mistakes with these children. We haven't done quite right at all times as parents should. And sometimes we, we suffer because of what we've done, because we reap what we sow. But you see, where, where you are, God can move you on. There's more. There's definitely more. But this positive, active obedience of Christ, I don't know, I, I've been a Christian a long time, and I'm learning all the time. It seems that every time I look at something, I think, well, where have I been? How is it that that's there and I haven't seen that and understood it? Why is it that I'm, and they always said to me, you see, it's, you've got to deal with this. Because actually the revelation of Jesus Christ in our life is a progressive revelation. He's going to, he's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and he takes over all our life and we get consumed like the Apostle Paul. Like we spoke about in North, in, in North Wales. The Philippians 3 chapter, you know. I, I mean, you hear a word, you see, God gives you a word. But it's quite another thing for you to walk in that word that you've heard. Because every time you're going to make a step to walk in with the revelation of truth God's given you, you've got an enemy. 
Satan, John 10, he comes to steal and to kill. What does he want to steal from you? This word that you've heard. Because if you can keep this word in your heart and meditate on it and walk in it and obey it, you'll begin to progress spiritually and walk by faith. But it's keeping your heart with all diligence. You see, Jesus, in his life, even as we 12 in his bar mitzvah, and remember he disappeared for three days, didn't he? They couldn't find him. They'd been to the feast in Jerusalem, feast of Passover, I suppose, on the way back, big caravan of people from Nazareth, they didn't know where he was. You know, it's about, I think it's about 100 miles from Jerusalem to Nazareth. Quite a long way, isn't it, to walk? So after three days' journey, no Jesus. They go back all this way, back to Jerusalem, and there's Jesus in the temple. What did Jesus say? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Well, how many of us are about father's business? You know, most of us are about our own business. It's a problem, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I think the Lord's on my case. I said to the Lord, I don't want to go to Peter Biron and speak. You're on so many things in my life. Why should I get him to speak to anybody? <laughs> Can't somebody else do it? And I'll sit there. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, well, you, you expected to go and you better do what I tell you. <laughs> You can't walk by your feelings. You've got to walk by faith. Haven't you? Well, Jesus certainly walked by faith. Uh, I think John gave me a book, didn't you? John, where's John? John there, yeah. He gave me this big book by a Jew, printed in, was it the 19th century? Well, this book gives you the whole background of the Gospels in great detail. And in this book, you begin to understand the tremendous opposition that when Jesus went public after his baptism and his temptation, the tremendous opposition he faced from the Jewish authorities. Everywhere he went, he was hounded. And after not many a year, half a year had gone, they wanted to kill him, as you know. They tried very hard to kill him. Of course, we know they couldn't kill him before the time because he was anointed with so much power he had to lay down his life, didn't he? But you see, what amazes me about Jesus, and as you study this, his active, positive obedience in his life, he never failed once. You think about that now. Word, thought, and deed. The first two great commandments, I shall love the Lord thy God with a heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, which one of us can keep that? And his neighbours yourself. See, this is the whole problem. And what the Lord is beginning to show to me, and I want to tell you is, yes, we might be in a church that's messed up. You know, we hear all these prophets come. There's going to be a mighty revival. These prophets come and they prophesy all this stuff, you know. Well, there was plenty of prophets in the day of Elisha. There was a school of prophets wasn't there? And they said when, when, uh, when he told the school of prophets, oh, Elijah's gone to heaven. And the school of prophets said, oh, no, we, we don't believe in that. We, we're liberals. We don't believe in the supernatural power of God. And anyway, we're cessationists, and we think all that sort of stuff is finished. He couldn't possibly disappear and gone onto a chariot to him. He must be somewhere. Why don't we go and look for him? Yeah, we've got schools of the prophets here today. We've got the Catholics, the Protestants, the Evangelicals, the Pentecostals, the Faith Movement and the Grace Movement and the Prophetic Movement. I tell you what, you better not rely on any man, you better rely on Jesus and this Word and the Holy Spirit because he will lead you into all truth. You know, Tony was telling me about a certain preacher, I don't know much about him, and he was saying he teaches it. I said, really? He doesn't... I tell you what, we're living in... Well, what does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3, 1? Let's hit the rubber where the road is. We're not fair where the prophets. We're telling you as it is. 
This is the reality of the... Know ye not also that in the last days, perilous days shall come. We're living in them. There's so many doctrines that are false that are hitting the church, like fideism, sandimonism, legalism, antinomianism. All these things are damaging you, the body of Christ, if you listen to the nonsense. You know, as I said to Tony, they get you a card, they say, you go on the street, you just, and you meet somebody and you say to them, just say all this and then you're born again. You're not. That's fideism. Look, there's got to be a work of the Spirit working in your life to bring you to a point where you understand your state that you're in, for you two could be, get convicted to repent of your natural state, to come out of the filth, like Elisha, and come with your Elijah Christ. I tell you, we are living in perilous days. He said, and this is what he says, these, and he talks about the natural affection, only they are lovers of pleasure. I mean, do you put pleasure above Jesus? That is idolatry. This is a big temptation for us. You know, we've got to watch this. Do you know, I have always criticized the Israelites when, they, um, when Moses went up the mount for 40 days and 40 nights and they were left with Aaron and remember they made a golden calf and they were all having a great time in the flesh. Well, God's house is a bit like that. You don't need to be down in the valley. You need to be up the mount with Christ in Mount Zion with your spiritual Moses who's Christ. And don't get where the golden calf is because you'll end up messing about with the, the people on the ground floor, as it were. No. You know, it says here, they have a form of godliness. It's a form. But there's no power. What did Paul, uh, Peter, um, Paul say to Timothy? From such, turn away. Look, if you've got to live on your own like Elijah and know God, you better live on your own. Don't you get messed up with these people. It's time for you as an individual to get your spiritual service and your well unblocked and get the well flowing and the rivers flowing. You know, when you study Canaan, Canaan, you know, we sung that song, uh, I'm, I'm living where the rivers are flowing. Well, there are a lot of people are what we call wilderness, in the church in the wilderness. You get something in bread, and you get water. You can't sow nothing. You can't plant nothing, because you're in the wilderness. You've got no fruit. You're on the same boring day and night diet, and you're miserable. Have you seen these people walk around miserable? Like the sister said the other night when this leader came to her, what have you got that I need? This Henry said, I come to bring the joy leg back. Well, you're going to have no joy with no fruit. That's true. No, you've got our fruit. You've got our fruit. And if you want fruit, you need seed. And you need good ground. And you need to know how to cultivate it. And you need water. <laughs> water. Canaan had former rain and latter rain. And when God's people stopped keeping the, the feasts and stopped tithing and giving offerings and stopped keeping the temple going, what happened in the days of Ahab and Jezebel? God sent Elijah and he said, you're going to have no rain for three and a half years. Well, we've had no rain for how many weeks? And our grass is brown. Will you imagine a place with no rain for three and a half years? You know, there's some people, they wouldn't know if the Holy Ghost moved in a meeting, if he wore a red hat to come in a meeting. They wouldn't know it was Holy Ghost. Why? Because they turn up in church and it's just a form. It's just a ritual. It's just, you know, oh, 
And I've been to some of these places and I feel sick. I think, ugh, how can I stick this? I went to one meeting, I walked out halfway through, and I, and I went and I saw some of the people. You walked out of our meeting, you know, as I pitied some crime, you know. Look here, we're not supposed to put up with dead religion, having a form of godliness but denying the power. I thank God for Henry when he came to our denomination. They didn't like him. They called him everything. So I said, you can stick it, I'm off. I didn't have a very good attitude, as I've told you before about them. But I tell you what, it's better for you to stand fast in the liberty where Christ has set you free, and you better keep free, and keep your well unblocked, and keep the rivers flowing, and keep the Holy Ghost working in your life. Well, Jesus never put a foot wrong. And the Lord said to me, are you willing to walk like I walked in this world? I said, I'm willing, but I'm not sure I can do it. <laughs> and I'm having a problem. <laughs> but you know, it's by grace. Do you know, the thing is, you start putting your foot, with, start walking with Jesus, what's going to happen to you is going to be grace upon grace upon grace. He will empower you to walk the life of faith. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by the power of the Holy Ghost. Look here, we cannot possibly have cessationism. Jesus was glorified to send the person the Holy Ghost and he's here to help us and we must cry out, fill me! Yeah, fill me, fill me. Well, Jesus now had worked and we, well, the scripture tells us that Jesus only did what his father told him to do, and he only said what his father told him to do. And is Jesus Lord of my life? Well, I say, Lord, help me. I sing, Holy Spirit, help me. I tell you what, it seems that when God is dealing with your life, there are things hidden in your life, and he just brings them to the top. And he says, have a look at that. And you better repent and get rid of it. You might have a job getting rid of it. But keep at it. You might fall a few times. But get up and repent and keep walking by faith. Yeah. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Is Christ in each one of us is our hope of glory. Yeah. And this is the point, isn't it? We have to understand that Jesus now had lived this perfect life. We know from the tabernacle the lamb had to be spotless. He didn't have to have any blemish. Jesus, when he went to Gethsemane, was going into the greatest crisis that any human being could ever face. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Think about it. Gethsemane. Judas had gone. There were 11 disciples. And Jesus called three of them with him into the garden. Peter, James, and John. Do you think those disciples knew what was going on? No way. They hadn't got a clue. He said to him, will you watch with me and pray? And due to the pressure, they fell asleep, didn't they? Now Jesus is now going to experience something a human being will never, never experience. What he went through in Gethsemane is the ultimate trauma of becoming the Lamb of God. This is no longer positive, active obedience by Christ. This is what is called passive obedience. He's moving from where doing something where he becomes the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world for your sin and my sin. This is something that no man and no man had ever been through in, in, in existence since creation, but this is what he was going to go through. 
It's, it's a transition from his positive life of obedience. And with the other point that must be emphasized here, that in his walk of faith, in positive active obedience, he fulfilled every legal demand of the law. He didn't, what Jesus did when he cried on the cross was, did not do away with the law. He had to, he, in order to go to the cross, he had to fulfill the law. In my opinion, and in many other people's opinion, if Jesus had not perfectly, actively obeyed Christ, his Father God to be the spotless Lamb of God, he would have never survived Gethsemane. Because as he walks into Gethsemane, is suddenly the realization is he's looking and gaping down into hell. He's about to be cut off. It was not just the wounds of crucifixion and the horror and the suffering, but he was beginning to realize that that communion, that union, that fellowship that he had with his father was about to be broken. He was about to be cut off. He was about to be made sin with our sin. It's what the authorized calls propitiation. When somebody commits an offense to you, people get offended by some serious offense. They want vindication. They want justice. They want reparation, don't they? Well, God, this is, the, this is where the gospel is going wrong today. This is Romans 1. This is where it's all going wrong. This is what it says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth, Jew and the Greek. And this is the statement, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. For in this gospel, the wrath of God is revealed. Not going to be revealed, it's been revealed now against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. There's an idea today that God is just a lollipop, candy floss God, a God of love. No, God is a God of justice. Your salvation is legal. He's signed and sealed with the blood of Jesus. If, it, if you could have just been forgiven, Jesus wouldn't have needed to become. There's justice got to be done. Somebody's got to pay the price. And it was Jesus. He became that sin offering, that trespass offering. He was made to be sin for us. That we could be made the righteousness of God, the great exchange. This is our problem, isn't it? The church's problem. They want a quick fix gospel. Oh, God is love. God just loves you. No, 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 no. God wants to change you. God wants to convert you. In fact, God wants to kill you so that you die and you rise a new person. That's the gospel. Yeah, that's identification. That's what the great... Reformed preachers preached the union of the believer with Christ. Why did Paul say, I die daily? Because it's a daily job. It's a daily job. What is it in Romans 12, 1, he says, after all he said in this wonderful gospel, uh, Roman epistle, present your body a living sacrifice. He doesn't want you when you're dead, he wants you now. And this is painful. If you're not going to suffer with him, you're not going to reign with him. 
It's suffering. You're going to be misunderstood, misjudged, persecuted. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 the vision, the, what the beatific vision of the Sermon on the Mount of Christ in the believer and his character and his attributes, he stands in persecution. As Henry used to say, if you're not persecuted, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> He's right. If you live just and righteous for God in the church today, you'll be persecuted. Every one of the men of God that have come to the church have been persecuted and thrown out very often. Wesley was thrown out. Whitley was thrown out. General Booth was thrown out, the Methodist. Henry was thrown out. I've been thrown out. We've all been thrown out. But thank God we're with Christ. They don't understand our enthusiasm. They don't understand why we believe in joy. We don't understand why we want to dance and rejoice. You know, as some, you know, as, as John Bunyan says, and he's right, we should move from the cross to the throne. And as another preacher said, everybody that stays at the cross remains a cross Christian. <laughs> they got coffee pot religion. It, it's, it's serious, isn't it? It's not easy for us. We live in this day that Paul said to Timothy, perilous times. You can read the whole thing, I haven't got time to read it all, but seducing hypocrites, seducing false prophets, he said it all. And we got these false prophets. We've got a gospel of greed too. Haven't we? We must have this and we must have that. No, we want Jesus. Jesus says, seek me first and my kingdom and his righteousness and I just give you what you need. You know, I, I, I realize that I and I are not what you call, well, we're not the poshest, you know. But we, we manage to get through life, you know. <laughs> we, we, we get through life. We, you know, praise the Lord. But here Jesus is facing something. I never really thought about this. I thought... Jesus did that for me. Why aren't I willing to suffer for him? I call myself a disciple of Christ, but am I willing to suffer for him? Do I want all my way? Do I want to be self-centered instead of Christ-centered? Because I can tell you, if you get self-centered, you'll soon be into idolatry. You'll start thinking about your money, or your possessions, or your holidays. Or your, as some people in my family believe, their family tree. We were related to so-and-so. Well, I'm related to Jesus. They sent me a letter uh, after my mother died and said all this. I sent them a you all need to get related to Jesus and get born again. I've never heard another word. <laughs> Not another word. They might be all wealthy and living in posh things and evidently one of my cousin's daughters got married and the, the reception of the marriage lasted 10 days. I don't know how much it cost. but Well, we're going to a marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to last a long time. <laughs> we better start getting ready. <laughs> but here, let's share with you something I saw in this. Yeah. Jesus in the garden shows another aspect of his earthly life and ministry as the Son of Man. I read this, I'm not sure this is Jonathan Edwards, he says, this incident begs for a deeper explanation. Here we see a closer and penetrating look at Jesus' inner life and motivation and experience. So we see in a clearer view of why and how he died and how we can respond, including the crucifixion. 
And here we see the magnitude of the pain that Jesus experienced. Grief and sorrow were shouting out in a way anything has ever been recorded. This is what he said, My soul is overwhelmed with the sorrow to the point of death. Jesus now had lived a life where he was in complete control. Now he has no control. He's now become or becoming the Lamb of God. He's got to passively end it. As we know, as we read in the, in the, in the Gospels, he said, is it at all possible for this cup to pass from me? Saying to his father, is there any other possible way that this price of sin and death can be dealt with? No. Three times. And then it says, if you read the scripture, it says, an angel from the law came and strengthened him. Satan tried to destroy Jesus before he ever got to the cross. And we wouldn't have been redeemed. Satan had tried to destroy him as a baby. Satan had tried to destroy him in his earthly ministry before his time. As I said to you before, when they came to take him in Gethsemane with at least 500 soldiers, and he said, I am, 500 soldiers collapsed on the ground like a pack of cards. That's the power Jesus had. Let's get it right. Jesus had to lay down his life. If you had so much power and you belonged to the Godhead, would you want to say, I'm going to lay down my life for these people? Jonathan Edwards has said this in his commentary. He says, Jesus could have easily said, Father, why should I worry about these people? They can't even pray for me in my greatest hour of need. They've been with me three and a half years. Can't they understand anything? Haven't they seen my miracles? Do you know, we can be very dull at times. We can look at everything from our selfish point of view. But do we understand that we belong to a kingdom that's far bigger than us? It's an eternal kingdom. And if you're going to be with Jesus for eternity, you better suffer with him now. Because you're going to have to. What does Paul say? Lay aside every weight. We got, you know, we can gather weights, can't we? And the sin that does so easily beset us. Well, I, I, I know myself. I know particularly, sometimes I get really fed up with myself. So who, you know, I can't point the finger at nobody. I got to, it's, it's this way. What does Paul say in Romans? Examine yourself. Not examine everybody else. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. You might do well today, but tomorrow, how are you going to do tomorrow? Are you going to go off at some tangent tomorrow and some flesh ride, you know, somewhere? Or are you going to keep on the pathway of faith? And walk by faith and not by sight? No wonder it says, looking unto Jesus. Well, Jesus was willing to do that for me. He could have easily said, called, what does it say, called how many legions of angels, couldn't he? He could have wiped them all out. One angel wiped out a whole Assyrian army with Ezekiah, isn't it? One angel. Do we understand who we're connected to? I don't know whether I do completely. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying. I think Irene understands better than I do. She looks at me sometimes, you know. (laughs) And I know that look and I think, well, I better get some washing done. (laughs) 
Better get some water out. Yeah, yeah, you've you got to... This is serious business. You know, this is not about me. The gospel is not about me or you, it's about Jesus. What did Paul say? My life is hid with Christ in God. I'm not seen, it's Jesus. And if, you see, and this is another thing that comes out of this positive, active life of obedience by Christ. When you study it, you begin to understand it's like an iceberg. You know that iceberg that's near that island somewhere, isn't it? threatening this little island somewhere, isn't it? This big iceberg. Well, that's only the top of it, see, the, you know, the bit you see. Underneath it's absolutely massive, you know, these icebergs, aren't they? They've got a massive, you just see the top that's floating, and underneath there's this massive mountain of ice. Well, that's like Jesus. You only saw that, but could you see the inner life? That's what Jonathan Edwards is saying. Can you see what's behind this man with this public ministry? This is continuous fellowship and prayer and worship and adoration of his father. Spent all night in prayer. And the Lord said to me, when are you going to start doing more praying? In other words, if you look at Jesus and his positive active obedience, I can see now as Jonathan Edwards said, there's something there that we've got to learn. Which is Romans 8.4, it says. What does Romans 8.4 say? I can't remember it now. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the the Spirit. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. As I keep looking at Jesus, I begin to understand that he's empowered me to live a life that he lived on earth. So we've concentrated on the cross, but let's concentrate on the, past, on the positive, active obedience of Christ that led to him becoming the Lamb of God that could pay the penalty because he was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. See, there, see there's, a, there's a gospel going around, and they keep quoting this verse in John 1, that the, the, the law came by Moses, but it didn't. It came from God. God wrote the law on the tablets and gave them to Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But you see, you can take a verse out of context and say, oh, we don't want any legalism. But we want, we want grace. But we want grace on our terms so that we can do just as we like. You can't have that. That's not the gospel. No, 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 no. No, that is not the gospel. In any way, if you study the Roman epistle and you're getting an understanding of justification by faith, there's no mention of Moses whatsoever. There are two people who are mentioned one is Abraham and one is David. Why? Because Abraham, it says, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does that mean? He was justified. That means he was saved. Oh, but how could he be saved before the cross? Look, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. We've got this term now, a latest term in the, on the big preachers. We want to unhitch the Old Testament from the new because we don't want any of this old stuff, wrath of God and all this. You can't do that. It's like you saying, I'm going to take the foundation away from my house and hope it stands. <laughs> bonkers. Bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. You can't do that. It's the foundation of our faith. What did Paul preach? Did he have the New Testament? No. He had the old, and he, what did Jesus te teach those two on the road to Emmaus? The gospel is not new, it's back in Genesis. We speak on Abraham tomorrow and I'll, I'll explain them a bit more about it. We've got to get this straight. You've got to get your thinking straight. 
You've got to stop thinking muddled, confused information. Because the devil will confuse you. And if he can confuse you, he diffuse you. And if he diffuse you, you've lost all your power to live the Christian life. The truth sets you free. The truth. It's the truth that sets you free. Not heresy. We live in, as Paul said to Timothy, well, if it was like that in a green tree, what's it like now in a dry tree? Hmm. I tell you what, it's like God is saying, you know, sometimes God comes along and he give you a good, good shaking. You know? Wake up. Wake up. It's time to awake to righteousness. Well, the more you study Gethsemane, the more amazing it becomes. Absolutely amazing. I, I tell you, as I, as I study it, C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Great Divorce. If a person in this life never says to God, thy will be done, then eventually God will say to this person, your will be done. Yeah. And in the afterlife, you won't know God. You'll be in hell for eternity. Not a good prospect. If you want freedom from God, you quit justly, will get what you hope for. It will be, C.S. Lewis says, eternal torment. Hell. Uh, but that's what Jesus went through in Gethsemane for you and me. He went through hell. The most dramatic trauma, it says he sweat great drops of blood. They say medically that's when somebody is in extreme trauma. I believe now if the, the angel had come and ministered to him, he would have died. A natural man would have died under such trauma. But he did it for you. And he did it for me. Do you know we have to keep dwelling on these things? Because our spirit man needs to keep feeding on truth. Because your flesh demands a lot. But you've got to take up your cross and follow God. Paul says, I keep my body under. That having preached to others, I myself become a castaway. There's enough older ones here to know now. We can think of a lot of great men of God we've seen with great ministries and great miracles and the devil has got in their flesh and destroyed them. I remember sitting in Cardiff in this meeting. He preached for four hours, this man. And he was anointed. You can't follow the anointing always. Samson was anointed going to Delilah, but he wasn't right. And the Lord said to me, Samson was going to Delilah, but he wasn't right. And he said, this man is going to only last a few more months and he, uh, years, he said, and he's gone. I didn't know what it was all about. I had a clue. I was only 21. I didn't know much at all. I don't know what I know today. I said, really, Lord? And sure enough, he was gone. Another man greatly used with signs and wonders and miracles, a man of God who somebody quoted him, Kenneth Hagin, actually, in North Wales, you know, was it David? And he said, one night, Kenneth Hagin had a dream about this man. He saw him in his car crash and was killed. And sure enough, a few months later, he was in a car. He was crashed and he was killed. You, you can't, you think you're old like me and you think, I'm too old to have all this mess in the flesh. You're never too, the devil knows your weakness. You've got to keep spiritually alert, spiritually awake. And make sure you keep your eyes on Jesus and keep feeding on the truth. You have to. And keep spiritually awake, George. <laughs> it's been a hot night, isn't it? <laughs> Praise the Lord. And there's something here i never quite seen before in Gethsemane and this business of the cup. Is it at all possible, Jesus said, that this cup can pass from me? Mm. 
this cup. It's been called by the great men of God. Nasser's calling. Um, The cup of wrath. This is called the cup of wrath. Is that my phone? Oh, sorry. Bring on the culprit. (laughs) I forgot to turn it off. (laughs) And then I was looking at Joanna and I said, I thought it was Joanna's phone, it's mine. (laughs) See, you mustn't judge. (laughs) Oh dear. I think, I think in those days there was a form of execution and that execution was drinking a cup of poison. Mm. I think the Greeks used it in the time of Christ. Jesus drunk the cup of wrath for you and for me. Wonderful, isn't it? What Jesus did. The terrible cup. And then suddenly Jesus became aware of the abyss. No father. No presence. No communion. That is hell. That is not heaven. That is hell. Jesus was beginning to experience the divine mountain of wrath against sin. That's what Romans 1 says. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Do you know the greatest problem with man is, you read Romans 1, is this. What Paul says, they deny God as their creator. They look at the trees, they look at... You know, we've got this wonderful bloke in the Emory. They make a, almost a god of this bloke, but he's an agnostic. He's an atheist, this bloke. They've named a ship after him, whatever his name is. I can't remember his name. But he denies the creator. And God says, in Romans 1, he's repressing the truth. It says in Romans 1 that man is without excuse. God has got every, every just right to be wroth and angry with man. Because he created everything for their good and they just say, you didn't, I'm God. Well, how stupid. A few bushfires somewhere and when will you be God to stop the bushfire? A few tsunamis, and when will you stop the tsunami? Can you stop it? If you're such a wonderful man, and God, you're not. No, the fact of the matter is that God is our creator. So if God has given us his word, his word is creative. His word is life. This is the water of life that washes us, that refreshes us, that that, you know, keeps us healthy. They tell us water is very important. Our body's got a lot of water in it, isn't it? Some have got more than others, but... But it's a lot of water. And then we can understand why the scripture says his visage was marred more than any man. Not just the physical suffering... The spiritual suffering. He was drinking the cup of wrath. God's wrath. And God turned his face away from him. And he cried out. That cry of dereliction. Terrible cry. That's why he only survived six hours. Was it on the cross? When people survived a lot longer, didn't they? Because he died of a broken heart. And his heart ruptured. And blood and water came out. And they stuck the spear in. And he put it in his side. But Jesus paid it all. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? 
what a wonderful Jesus we got. My wonderful. He was literally in agony, profusely sweating blood. Is it at all possible? This is what Jonathan Edwards said. The conflict in Christ's soul in the view of his last suffering was dreadful beyond all expression or conception. Why is Jesus experiencing what a foretaste of the cross and crucifixion would be? And this is a very important truth, he says, of salvation. Is it is to present seems to be properly understood by the church. We need to understand this, he said. This is what is known, as I said to you, as the positive and then the passive obedience of Christ. I think, you know, Jesus had to go through this so we wouldn't have to go through it in this journey as the creation. It was not only the greatest act of love in history, but the most astounding, perfect act of obedience by God's Son. And that's true. It was the most astounding, perfect and act of obedience. At the creation, a garden and a command. Obey me about the tree and live. Obey me and I will bless you. But disobedience, I will curse you. But Edward says, in the garden, the last, the second Adam, had another command and Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to the cross, which also is a tree. And the command of God to Adam was a prototype of all commands for everyone. God says, always obey me and I will bless you, I will be with you. Adam failed. But Jesus obeyed God and when he obeyed God, God the Father said, I will crush you. But Jesus did that for us. He was crushed. He was bruised for us. Isn't it wonderful? This is the first time in history obedience will bring a curse. I will forsake you. I will cast you off. And I'll send your soul to hell. And yet Jesus obeyed it. George Herbert in a hymn said, All of you who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me, was ever grief like mine. This cup of wrath is mentioned in, in Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 23. But Jesus saw the end from the beginning. But do we? Do you understand that if you, if I will understand, if you will go with Jesus, the outcome is glorious. It's worth it all. Jesus is no longer suffering in Gethsemane. He's no longer suffering on the cross. No. <laughs> He's no longer embalmed in a tomb. But he is risen. He's ascended. <laughs> He's glorified. He sits there until all his enemies. Will you come and sit with him? Will you move from the cross to the throne and sit up there with him each day? You know, the enemy wants to make you get on the roundabout of life and keep you moving in works in the flesh. But step off and step into fellowship with Christ and sit at his feet each day. Where is Christ sitting? At the right hand of the Father. What is so wonderful about justification? What is so wonderful about your salvation? <laughs> Can't touch nothing. 
He's either moves or if No, it's wonderful. It isn't it wonderful? Can you dwell on this? Can you think about this? About what Jesus has done? Justification. Well, what are the three great things in justification? I'm going to get my knees now. It's all right for little people. Therefore, being justified by faith, we are peace with God. We have access by faith and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. <laughs> have you got peace with God? <laughs> Are you very agitated? Are you very fearful? Some people are. Do you know why they're agitated and fearful? Because they're living in the wilderness. They haven't crossed over Jordan. <laughs> they haven't got the knife out and done a bit of circumcision. Gilgal. <laughs> Thank you, brother. It's wonderful. Oh, there's so much. There is so much more. <laughs> There is so much more, isn't there? Can we get to the end of this? <laughs> you know, everywhere you look, if you look at something, you, the Lord gives you a word like water, it's everywhere. <laughs> you know, what, 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 you know, Jesus can feed you, do you know that? You know, I said this to some people. I said to my son, because he has to preach over in Guernsey at the church. <laughs> and because uh, they lost the minister, <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> and uh, I said, some people get up to preach and they give you the ingredients. Well, if you try and eat ingredients <laughs> without it being cooked, <laughs> it's not very palatable. You know, I wonder where people sit there and they think, what's going on here? What is this? <laughs> you know, Jesus is the master chef. He knows how to give you the ingredients and then teach you how to cook it. So he can feed you. Mm. My grandmother was brought up in India for 45 years. She came and she could cook curry, boy. Couldn't she cook curry? but she'd take all morning and mess the whole kitchen up. But when the food came out, it was wonderful. Well, Jesus, <laughs> as, as Julie once said years ago, they'd been fishing. They said, oh, we don't know what's happened to Jesus. We'll go fishing. <laughs> they come back and Jesus has made breakfast. Do you remember? He's made breakfast on the beach. And then Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Do you know, we've got to learn to read, to study, to meditate until the whole thing becomes palatable and we can eat it and we get strengthened and we get refreshed. But of course, you can't eat all that without wine and you've got to have some wine to get it down. Well, Jesus says, I'll drink it new within the kingdom. Well, we are in the kingdom. And we are, we are new creatures in Christ. And Jesus wants to feed you on the finest, doesn't he? On the best. <laughs> and you know, because we've got access, we've got a seat at the table. You've got a seat at the table. But how many people are going to down to McDonald's instead of going to Jesus' table and feast? You know, I said to Eric yesterday when coming, I couldn't eat this stuff every day. It's all right in an emergency, you know. But, oh. <laughs> Something in a wrap, you know. You don't know what's in it, but you eat it. You eat it you know. By faith, you say your grace and you eat it. <laughs> no, Jesus 
We've got to go to Jesus. He must be number one, as we read in Philippians 3. <laughs> read Philippians 3 in the, in, the, in the Amplified, isn't it? Yeah. It's what Mary did. Jesus said to it, you have chosen the best, the one thing. So will you go back and, and have a bit of a personal revival? I'm hoping that I will go back. I was touched last night by, you know, by the, what the, Matthew said, Tony said, and, and, the, and the sisters, whoever they were. You know, it's available. Jesus has made it available, isn't he? You access by faith into this grace wherein you stand. That means you've got access into that place, that Mount Zion. You, you can eat at Christ's table like Mephishaboth. Do you remember about Mephishaboth? Um, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, remember? He was in Lodi Bar. And David said, well, where is the offspring of Jonathan and so on? Can I do some favor for him? And he was lame, wasn't he? And he came and sat at the king's table. Well, I've been down in Lodibar, and God has recovered me, and I can now sit at the king's table. So what are you eating and drinking? What are you eating and drinking? Keep off the cream cakes. And the Manchester tarts. And start eating the real food. <laughs> keep, eat, keep eating the real food. <laughs> and you'll be big and strong. And you won't have a lot of stuff around your liver and your... Something else. I watched the program the other day. I thought, oh my goodness me. No. We've got a wonderful salvation, haven't we? Don't you believe it? <laughs> Don't you think that Jesus is the best thing? He's wonderful, isn't he? Oh, we thank you, Jesus, that you went through Gethsemane for me yes. and for you. And I'll, are you willing to suffer with him that you might reign with him? And when you think it's not fair, say, you're justified. Yeah. It is fair. He's justified you. He's given you peace with God. You've got a wonderful relationship with God. You've got access to his very presence. And you have got joy, hope of the glory of of God. It's Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. This way is about moving from Pentecost, Passover to Pentecost to Tabernacles. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Let's give him the glory. Let's give him the praise. Lord, we thank you this morning for your wonderful mercy towards me for your wonderful grace that you've never given up on me. Lord, when I failed, you pick us up. You restore us. You reconcile us to you because you are our great high priest. You are moved with the feelings of our infirmities. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy seat. Thank you, Lord, that you paid the price for my full salvation and the price of these here present. Help us, Lord, to live each day pleasing you, glorifying you in our word, thought, and deed. In Jesus' name.